good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Reading the Word of God, 2 Kings chapter 8 and the verse number 1. Uh, then spake Elisha unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou in thine household, and sojourn whithersoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose, and did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household, and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And it came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life, that, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And so the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come hither. And the king said unto Haziel, Take a present in thine hand, and go and meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? So Haziel went to meet him, and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, forty camels burden, and came and stood before him, and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. And he settled his countenance steadfastly, until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. Haziel said, Why weep with my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and will dice their children, and rip up their women with child. And Haziel said, But what, is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So he departed from Elisha and came to his master. He said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldst surely recover. And it came to pass on the morrow, and that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face, so that he died. And Haziel reigned in his stead. Well, we shouldn't think that these various accounts in the life of Elisha have been arranged in a strictly chronological fashion. We shouldn't look at these and presume that one event is happening after another. Oh, certainly in the books of the kings there is a, a general chronology, but within the life of Elijah or Elisha there are events and they're organized in theme, organized in some structure, not necessarily organized one after the other chronologically. 
We know at least this in this story in that we see Gehazi involved again in verse number 4. And back in chapter 6, he was smitten with leprosy and at that point would have been excluded from these particular situations. It's also likely the famine referred to there in chapter 8, the Lord hath called a famine. It's likely that famine is the famine referred to in chapter 4 and the verse number 38 where Elisha came to Gilgal and there was a dearth in the land. And so we look at these things and we see that these are, are organized in themes for a particular purpose. The Lord is teaching lessons here to uh, the readers. So here we have two stories, and they do come together in a unit of thought. Verse number 16 is a typical, uh, if you like, a new chapter section. I know it's not a chapter in the authorized version, but you get these breaks of the sections, and in the fifth year of Jordan, it's a, it's a new idea in the writings. And so you could chapter 8, 1 to 15, with these two stories put together, and you wonder, why are they put alongside each other? What does the woman have to do with the king of Syria? Well, remember that these events were written for the benefit of God's people. And these accounts give us an insight into the one true and living God. And remember also that at this time, we've seen time and time again, there is the mark of wickedness in the land alongside the Lord preserving a remnant. That's the theme. Elijah and Elisha. God keeps a remnant amongst his people, though there is widespread apostasy and evil. And so what I want to do tonight, I want to do things back to front. I want to give you the conclusion. I want to tell you what you should understand from these, and then we'll go back to see what it teaches here in 2 Kings. And so to get the conclusion, let's go to the New Testament. And let's go, please, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Because when you see these two accounts together in 2 Kings 8, what you're seeing is that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. That's a simple lesson. God rewards the righteous and God punishes the wicked. And those things often come together in the Word of God. They're often set side by side. And we think, well, they're, they're distinct. And yes, they are, in essence. There is reward and there is punishment, but they're often put together in the Scriptures. And so you've got Romans chapter 2 and the verse number 5, where there is the warning at the end of that verse of the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. And then there's a division. To them who by patient, continuous in well-doing, they seek for glory and honor and immortality. To that group, there is the promise of a reward of eternal life. But to the second group, verse 8, them that are contentious, those that do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what is their, uh, what is their uh, rendered for their deeds? It is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. And so you see, there's reward for the righteous, there is punishment for the wicked, and they are set side by side in this portion. Paul, later on in Romans chapter 11, and the verse number 22 says this, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God's. They're kept together. God's goodness on them which fail, there is severity, but toward thee, goodness. And so these things are put together in the Scriptures. Now, we, of course, understand 
that when we talk about God rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked, that we're not suggesting that people are saved by their righteousness or by their good works. Rather, their righteousness is an evidence of grace. Their righteousness is an evidence of God's free grace in their lives. They've come to lean upon Christ. And through the miracle of the rebirth, God works righteousness in them as he saves their soul from the power of sin. But at the end of the day, there is evidence that stacks up in judgment. There are those who are shown to be righteous in judgment, and there are those who are shown to be unrighteous. The unrighteous, they receive punishment, and the righteous receive the reward of eternal life. And so you go back to 2 Kings chapter 2 and keeping that general theme in mind, and I do think we see that very clearly in this portion. We see God's gracious kindness to a woman, and we see God's strict justice upon an ungodly nation. And they're set side by side in the Word of God that we would understand this is the way of the unchanging gods. He's pleased to show gracious kindness to a woman. Now, we've met this woman before. She is the woman whose son he had restored to life. You remember, you go back to chapter 4. Remember 2 Kings chapter 4 and the verse number 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. This woman, she believed God. She respected the word of God. And she performed these righteous deeds. She made a chamber for the, the prophet. She was kind toward the prophet. Again, note the order. She believed God. She received the word of God. And she performed these righteous deeds. It's always the order. You see, to receive Elisha was to receive the God of Elisha. And she shows kindness to the prophet because she's come to trust the God of the prophet. She was contrasted with the youths, again, whom God sent bears upon. And they had asked that the prophet go away like Elijah did. Go up thy bald head, go up thy bald head. But here was a woman, come in, come in, come in, my prophet of God, come into my home. She had received God and she had received the prophet of God. And what you see in this portion in 2 Kings chapter 8 is God's kindness to this woman. Gracious kindness. He directs her steps. Verse 1, Elisha speaks to the woman, goes to her, tells her of the coming famine, and tells her in the language of verse number 1, Arise and go thou and thine household, and sojourn whithersoever thou canst sojourn. Verse 2, and the woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. She's warned of the famine. She's given direction. I think it's interesting. She's not given particular directions. She's given some freedom to choose where she goes in light of the warning that she's given. Sojourn whithersoever or wheresoever thou canst sojourn. The Lord's people, they often want to know exactly what they should do next. They want a word from God, a direct word. If there's a change in life, young people look to their future or some other thing happens in life, I need a direct word. I want to know from God where to go next. But actually what you see in the word of God is just keep living righteously. Do right things, make right decisions and the Lord is pleased to direct your steps and preserve your ways. Now, we may, not, we may not have a direct word from God as she does here, arise and go. 
But we have the general promise in the Word of God. You all know the verses. You've been taught it since you're you a child. Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct. That's the promise, isn't it? He shall direct. That's a promise from God's Word for us today. You keep putting God first. You seek first God's kingdom. You keep having God before you. You may not have a, a direct idea of what you should do next, but God directs us. And, and there are those who have been saved for years, and they will say that. They look back, and they can see, oh, the Lord's hand was there. Oh, I couldn't see it at the time, but he was directing me. He was moving me from place to place, from time to time. God's hand is upon his people. He cares for us in that he directs us. And it's a mark of his provincial care that he moves us according to his good pleasure and his will. Not necessarily geographically, but in terms of directing our steps from job to job, from place to place, according to his gracious providence. He also delivers her in her troubles. The famine has come to the end, verse number three, and the woman returns out of the land and she goes forth to cry unto the king. What's happened here? Well, it seems likely that this great woman has had her land falsely removed from her. She's been away for seven years, at least. She's been away for that time, and it would seem to be that somebody has stolen her land. She's a great woman. We know that from chapter 4. The timing of this is interesting. Verse 4 and 5, you have one of these just wonderful accounts in the Word of God of what we might call seasons of blessed coincidence. Just as Gehazi was talking to the king, just as Gehazi was talking to the king about this woman, just as Gehazi was talking about a dead body restored to life, look who appears! That's what the story is meant to convey to us. God makes no mistakes in his providential timing. We see coincidences here and there, but they are the works of an involved God, a God who's involved in time, evolved in history. We shouldn't miss the point here, and I'm not going to dwell on tonight, but we shouldn't miss the point here that the king has an interest, a curiosity in Elisha. He has tremendous evidence about the power of God, evidence before his very eyes, and yet it seems to be that his curiosity does not come to repentance and faith. This is a warning to keep in mind. Beware of being curious about religion, but do not going through with God and coming to trust in the living God. But the result of God's coincidences in verse number six is the king restores to the woman all that was hers and all the fruits of the fields since the days she left the land even until now. It's remarkable. My mind, maybe yours did also, my mind goes to Psalm 34. I'd like you to turn there, please. Go with God saw fit. And to behold this woman, uh, to restore her lands to her, to hear her, her cries. And you have Psalm 34 and the verse number 6. These are precious texts of Scripture. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. Or verse number 17 in the same psalm. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Now, I know what you're thinking. 
It's not always this way. Martyrs died at the stake in the midst of their troubles. But at the same point, we should not minimize how often in the Bible and in church history, the righteous did cry unto the Lord and they were delivered out of their troubles. We shouldn't miss that. Time and time and time and time again, the righteous cry unto God, he hears their cries, and he rescues them out of their troubles. Now, you know well enough by now that I will also say there are times the Lord delivers us in our troubles. And the rescue we have is from the ruination of our souls. That the real trouble was not our physical turmoil, but the real trouble was a danger to our souls. And God then delivers us out of our troubles in that sense. Of course, there's also the final eschatological application in that the people of God will be finally vindicated and they will be delivered out of their troubles eternally. We see all of those things. But just because we believe that sometimes God's people must wait for eternity... And just because we believe that sometimes we see God's grace by keeping us in our troubles does not mean that at other times God is not pleased to take us out of our troubles. Trials always have an end point. Some end point. For the child of God, expecting to be with Christ forevermore, there will always be an end point to their troubles. God is pleased to hear our cries. And so the theme of this section, I believe, in 2 Kings chapter 8, the theme of the section is God's gracious care for his remnant people. We know she was part of the remnant. She believed God. She took in the prophet of God. She's a genuine child of God. And God does not leave his people to their own devices. He directs her steps and he delivers her in her troubles. And it's an encouragement to the reader, keep on believing. Keep on trusting in the reliability and the faithfulness of a just God. And it's with that in mind that you then move into the second story. Because the God who cares for the remnant is also the God who executes strict judgment upon the ungodly. These are deliberately put side by side so that we would understand and see the contrast. Let me outline the story. Now, this is one of the accounts in our Old Testament where there are, there are quite a number of difficulties. There are some textual difficulties, and there are certainly some difficulties in fully understanding the history. Why does Elisha go to Damascus? Verse 1, or verse 7, sorry, and Elisha came to Damascus. We, we don't have all the answers. But what we do see are there, there are three main characters. There is the king, the prophet, and then this man, Haziel. Now the king, in verse 7, is sick. And in response to his sickness, he sends for the prophet. In verse number 7, the king of Syria was sick. And it was told him, the man of God has come hither. And the king said to Haziel, Take a present and go and meet the man of God. The king is sick. The king sends. And the king makes supplication. Verse 8, Shall I recover off this disease? That's the king. 
The prophet, in turn, gives a response. So Hazael goes, verse 9, he comes to the prophet. Elisha says to him, Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. In other words, the sickness you have is not unto death. Howbeit, the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. Now, we, we know the end of the story. What happens next? He does not die of the illness. He dies of the evil hand of Hazael. After that, we have this, this is curious interaction. Verse 11, he, Elisha, settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. This is one of those difficulties. Who's he and who's he? Well, the general thought is that it is Elisha who set his face upon Haziel until Haziel is ashamed. As a parent, I've always wanted to have the power of that look. The children are up to no good. And you want to be able to stare them out to the point that they break in the shame of their deception and their lies and their troubles. And that's what's happening here, I believe. I believe Elisha, under God's patience, is looking at this man and striking his conscience. It must have been some look. But Haziel is described as being ashamed. The prophet then shows his grief. The man of God weeps. Why does he weep? Because of what he knows. Verse 12 and 13, he has known, and we'll see this shortly, he has known that Haziel will be king over Syria, and as king over Syria, he is going to do much harm to the children of Israel. You've got the account 12, verse 12. Strongholds set in fire, young men slain with the sword, children dash, women and their child. It's a tragic account of Hazel's proposed wickedness against the people. So that's the king and the prophet, and then Hazael himself comes to center stage. Verse 13. But what is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? Does my own conviction that this is not genuine? We, we see it in our families. I would never do that. And that's the sense of the words here. There's a denial. How dare you suggest that I would ever do such a thing? But what you see very soon afterwards, this man has a plot in his mind. And clearly has evil intentions. And so he leaves. Verse 14, he departs from Elisha. He delivers the message. Verse 14. But note, he only delivers half the message and he answered, he told me that thou should surely recover. Children, just to be clear, that truth is deception. And you can say things are true, but deliberately seek to mislead others by omitting other things. Do not rationalize your lying because you lie by saying things that are true. It's a very subtle form of bearing false witness. And guard your hearts. I encourage you to do so. Make sure that you're fully transparent with the things you say. What he's doing here is deceiving. And so that deception comes to the fullness. It doesn't take long. And come to pass on the morrow that he suffocates the king of Syria. And he himself reigns in his stead. What's the point of all this? 
What are we to make of all this? Well, you will sit in your desk or your room reading this devotionally with great confusion unless you remember what happened in 1 Kings 19. So you got to turn back there. 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, right at the very beginning of our account of the life and times of Elisha, we have this unusual interaction with Elijah and Elisha at the end of Elijah's time on this earth. And the Lord has a purpose for Elisha. He's told to do certain things. Verse 15, And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Oh, here's Hazael in the previous book. A number of chapters earlier, he's mentioned in the context of Elisha. Now, again, most people suggest that at some previous point, Elisha has anointed Hazael. They've had some acquaintance. We're not told of the history at that point. But look what it says. After anointing Jehu, verse 16, to be king of Israel, you then get in verse 17, and it shall come to pass, from him that escaped with the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay... So Hazael is going to exert a sword. Upon whom? Upon the house of Ahab. And the house of Ahab are going to be judged for their idolatry and their wickedness. And God's going to use Hazael, who will become king of Assyria, to execute his justice. And yet at the same time, verse 17 or verse 18... Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bound to Baal. God keeps his remnant and judges the ungodly. We're seeing these things together again in the word of God. God judges the wicked. And so when you read 2 Kings chapter 8, the point of it all is, are you in the believing remnant? Or are you part of the ungodly company that will suffer the judgment of God? Make sure you find yourself in the believing remnant. And the believing remnant now, of course, are those who love Christ. They are those who trust in God's prophet. The final, the ultimate Elisha, the ultimate prophet of God, namely Jesus Christ. And they trust in him with all of their souls. And though the world around go into ungodliness, and though they're under the wrath of God, the godly remnant keep on trusting Christ. It's a very intriguing portion of Scripture. Two stories that seem entirely unrelated, and yet when you see them in the scope of Scripture, you see the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.